your mind wants to label me as a person with this disability, but I'm a Mecca. I'm a guy out here trying to change the world by changing one person at a time. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, I'm joined by my co-host, Avery Wilson. Hi, Avery. Hi. (laughs) And Avery serves as the association's assistant director of development. She's a rock star. And today, Avery and I are going to interview our guest and actually Avery's very good friend, Emeka Naka. Emeka, welcome to the Mental Health Download. Hey, I'm happy to be here. And so as many Oklahomans know, and and actually many people across the country, probably since he was on the Ellen show, Mecca has been in a wheelchair since he was 21. He was playing for a semi-pro football team when he tackled an opponent during a game. The opponent got to his feet and Mecca sadly wasn't able to move. Partially paralyzed, his life has never been the same. But despite his challenges in life, Emeka has become a huge inspiration through his determination, grit, compassion, and really his exemplary volunteer work. He's just an amazing, amazing human being that we're all just grateful to know. And most notably, Emeka has been an amazing advocate and volunteer for Mental Health Association Oklahoma, the Tulsa Area United Way, Center for Individuals with Physical Challenges, among others. And as many people know, in late 2018, Mecca was invited to be on Ellen DeGeneres' show because 50 people wrote letters to her, letting her know how incredible Mecca is. And while on the show, Ellen read aloud a letter that described Mecca as a Tulsa treasure. And Avery and I could not agree more. And we're also thrilled that Ellen and her sponsor Cheerios gifted Emeka with a check for $100,000 to celebrate his work in the community. He deserves every single penny of that. And then before we get to this phenomenal interview with Emeka, I just want to tell people that Mental Health Association Oklahoma has a new virtual support group called Coping with Trauma from Racial Injustice. It begins June 15th. And that free support group via Zoom is specifically for people dealing with the trauma and stress related to the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, and the ongoing crisis in America. It's facilitated by our dear friend Carmen White Yannick, and she is a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional and a non-denominational minister who understands the unique needs of people during this time. And you can get all the details about that, including how to sign up at mhaok.org forward slash support groups. Okay, guys, let's get this conversation started. The mental health download starts now. I love doing that. All right. So, Mecca, again, thank you so much for being here with us. It really is an honor. And you've been an amazing advocate for Mental Health Association Oklahoma for many years now. And we thank you for that. So, really, my first question is, can you tell us why you decided to get involved with our mission? My reasoning is, it's crazy because growing up, mental health has always been stigmatized. And I think that even in the African-American community, not because it wasn't needed, but I think it just goes to our more westernized way of doing mental health. And so in a particular community, you don't necessarily trust, how do I know that you have my best interests at heart from a multicultural uh, lens and things like that? And I think just now as America is starting to open his eyes to a lot of different things. I think we're starting to see that mental health is something that we all deal with. In some form or fashion, and along the course of our lives, we're all going to have 
a time that where things are, are, are rough or hard. And it's, it should not be wrong for someone to want to talk to somebody because we all want to talk to somebody. The fact that if I say I'm going to talk to a counselor, you look at me funny because I say I want to talk to my counselor. You say you want to go talk to your friend. I just don't think that that's a, that should be stigmatized when I can go to someone who has the equipment and the gear to help navigate through something that I don't know how to navigate with. I mean, that to me, that sounds wisdom and not foolish. But that's part of the reason why I got involved. Where I started my work with young people about 11, 12 years ago. And even me going through my own trauma, I recognized that a lot of issues that I had weren't issues, weren't physical issues. I think a lot of people might look and see me in a wheelchair and think that the brunt of my issues were physically were like, no, it wasn't that. It was, you know, everything for me, a lot of it for me was what was happening between my ears. What was I telling myself about what happened to me? And now I didn't, in my own journey, I did not go through an official counseling track. Once I started working with kids, I was some, somewhat of that for them, using my experiences to help navigate some of their experiences. And it was in that moment that I knew that I was going to go back to school. And I went back to school for counseling. And so then it just became a thing where, you know, I'm in this field. I believe in this field. And so I speak out and speak up for this field. Real quick, can you just talk to us about some of some of your own self-care that you do to take care of your mental health? Today's self-care is a lot different than yesterday's self-care. Again, when I tell you, me at 21, having this onset trauma, I didn't know how to how to take care of myself. And I didn't know how to ask for help. And so I did some things that got me here but it's not the things that are going to be able to get me there. Because so, I've still got a lot of unpacking of some things that I, I'm still doing now. But, but today, I am seeing a counselor. Um, for 10 years, the biggest thing that I did for myself was serve others. And I think that getting out of my own head was one of the biggest things that I could do. Because when I started working with youth, I think a lot of people it's easy to look at and say, oh my goodness, here's some guy that loves working with kids and is, is super altruistic. And at the time, that couldn't be further from the truth. I didn't, I didn't start working with kids because I just loved kids and wanted to give back. Honestly, it was a way for me to get out of my head and out of my house. And so it just happened to be the avenue there. And I think that for a lot of people, we have different avenues that are placed before us. And my avenue could have been drugs. It could have been alcohol. I just so happened to walk down the aisle of service and it actually benefited me a lot more than I expected it to benefit me. And so for me today, self-care, you know, I think as I started to walk out that path, I did find the Center for Individuals with Physical Challenges. Being able to work out and exercise, all of that really helped me in my processing of the day, decompressing of the day. And then just being able to be a help, a, a service to other people, um, it gave me purpose. And there's something about when you're living in purpose and you're living on purpose, it helps you frame pain. And so when you're able to put some kind of uh, a frame to your pain, it can actually give you something more there than you, you expect to get there from it. Emeka, you're so awesome. Ever since I've met you and heard your story, 
you've talked about how big of a role that mental health has played in your journey. And you've been such a helper since we became friends. And I know that so many people have benefited from you telling your story and, and being such a friend to everyone in the community. I can't think of a better counselor or therapist. So I may hit you up for some of that later on down the road. <laughs> but I just want to ask a question before we talk about racial injustice and things going on in today's world. Can you tell us how life has changed for you during COVID-19 as someone who has physical challenges? Oh, man. COVID has been tough. Like, it's been tough because just speaking on behalf, as as someone with physical disability, I think, one again, one of the biggest problems that I dealt with early was social isolation. Going from being able to travel as I want to, go where I want to, and then I have this injury and I'm in a wheelchair and I'm dependent on others, but I can't just jump in a car when I want to. I can't just leave my house when I want to. Going through that was devastating in the beginning. And that is the reality for a lot of individuals who have different needs. Community is everything. And that's what one thing is super important about the center is that it more important than the equipment is the community. And people go there and people go there and just sit all day long because I'm here with my friends. I'm here with my family. And so when you have COVID that came in and kind of pushed us all into our respective corners, um, that's been, I mean, it's tough. It's tough for me. It's tough for, I'm sure it's tough for you. It's tough, tough for our audience. But yeah, specifically being someone with a disability and already not having access to certain privileges uh, made it extremely tough. So today, I, I can tell you that for me, I was, I was in very much in a blessed position because a year ago, I was living in a small apartment. And had I been confined to a very small apartment, I can't tell you that I could have been handling COVID the way I'm handling it now. This house that I was blessed to, to have by, you know, through Habitat for Humanity has definitely made COVID much more bearable because I'm not cooped. I'm in a neighborhood in which I can, I can go on my chair and ride down the street. I can go on the patio and get some sun. I can move around and not feel confined to feeling the walls are closing in. But that's not the story for a lot of people. That was the scary part about this town was, man, this is, I know that I'm trying not to die from getting sick, but I'm also trying not to die from getting in my head. And so, uh, you know, I, my, my heart's with, with, you know, all my people out there that have been struggling through this, this pandemic. It's been really tough. And I know you're a super social person. You're one of the most outgoing people I've ever met. And it's been tough to be inside for so long, but I'm so happy to hear that your new space has helped you out. And I can imagine you going out and taking your van around just to, just to get out and be somewhere. Um, there's a lot of driving and just playing music happening, for sure. And I'm like, sure it was a good time. If, if, I, if I pulled up to a, to a stoplight and my windows were down, I saw a car beside me, and I got to roll that up. I can't catch, I can't catch the COVID. I can't <laughs> catch the COVID. So. <laughs> uh, well, so now let's get to another important topic. Um, let's talk about how, how has the trauma related to racial injustice personally affected you? Oh, okay. The heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Let's get into it. When it comes to, 
I'll just I'll just track this back to when we first when we all saw Mount Auburn and watch and me I'm from Georgia and knowing that this happened in Georgia watching the video that in itself was triggering because it's damn that that could be me because there's nothing that he did that I wouldn't have done like seeing some construction and just taking a peek if I see people jump up come up to me in a car I don't know who you are. I have a right to defend myself. And so, unfortunately, that pain that surged through my entire being is not unfamiliar. It's a pain that, like, that's a wound that, that, that is ne- that's never been fully healed for a lot of, for every African American in this country. For everyone that, that sees uh, that there's a new hashtag, that's just a, it's, it's salt in the same moon. You fast forward that, then you have the Breonna Taylor, and then you have George Floyd, and George Floyd being the one that has sparked the national outcry, it too, just more salt in the same moon. And so I've had a lot of friends that have reached out to ask me, how, how are you doing? And it's for, and my friends are right, for you, it's a new pain. For me, it's a, it's, a, it's a chronic illness, per se. And so, how am I doing? I'm, I'm tired. That's what it is. I'm tired. And so, it's been, it, there's levels to the pain, which, unfortunately, it's, it's, there's the fact that it happened. That's one level. Then there's the fact that you're going to have people that are going to try to justify and ask questions as well. I, we, didn't, we don't know the whole story. We I got to see the video. I got to, what did he do? And then you've got the third level, which is probably the deepest level of people that don't say anything about it. The last one is almost a, is being gaslighted by our country. This problem has been here for decades, if not centuries, and you're not saying anything, so you're trying to make me believe that it doesn't exist. And I can see the wound, I can feel the wound, and I'm telling you what I feel. And you're telling me that what I feel is not valid. That's traumatizing in itself. There is so much trauma in the world right now being brought up. I had the chance to go to the peaceful protest where I ran into you. And being a part of that, you could just feel the pain in the crowd. And it was a super powerful moment. It's hard to even describe, but being around everyone in our community and and trying to be a part is really important and letting your friends know you that I'm here for you. And please let us know if there's anything that we can do to be better advocates. Another aspect of the trauma is there's this collective trauma. It's this collective pain because I saw someone write, being Black in America is having a good day. And then opening up your social media to see a video of an unarmed Black man being killed, then finding out that the, the killing happened two months ago and the people that killed them are sitting at home. And mm, like it, 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 it resonates because I can remember that for each of these, for every time I've seen the story come out, is I was having a good day. I was, I was, I was chilling. I was, I, it was great. And now I'm wrecked. And then it's, it's I make, put my thoughts out there in the, in and I put my thoughts on this so people can understand, like, this, this hurts. And then as I read social media, here's another person 
who puts their thoughts out there. You're right. Like, that is what this feels. And so you, you, you start to, there's this collective pain because as people put their thoughts out there, they resonate with your spirit in a way that you were able, that I wasn't able to articulate. Like, I'm looking at it from this angle, and then they say it from this angle, like, oh, dang, you're right. Like, you know, and it's hard because it's, it, again, this is something that we've, we've continued to go through over and over and over again. One of my biggest worries is that for African Americans in this country, it's it's a battle that has been being fought over and over since you know since we got here. And my worry is that for my friends who are wanting to be advocates and wanting to be allies, is that I say that you're showing up for battle, but I want you to be ready for war because if this isn't one of those things. Racism is is a is a system. And it's not one of those things where because we all showed up to a protest one time that things are going to change. Like racism is still going to be around it. Um, I would love for it not to be, but it it, it it will be. And my question is when we're, we're cutting the quote unquote bad apple, but what happens when the next bad apple grows? For everyone that saw the George Floyd video, it was obvious like, oh, that's wrong. Whether it's a week from now, six weeks from now, six months from now, it's going to, something's going to happen. And I hope that my friends and I hope that everyone that is showing up now has the stamina to keep showing up because it is exhausting. It is exhausting work. And it's an, it takes an emotional toll because once you open yourself up to feeling what people feel when they see injustices happen, Oh, it's, it's going to be painful because I think for the most part, a lot of people have just been, oh, that I, I see it, but out of sight of mind, it's not my problem. But now that you have run 2.23 miles, you've been at protests, at this point, you're not going to be able to ignore when these things happen. And it will cost you, being an ally will cost you. It will cost you time. It will cost you friends. It will cost you family. It'll cost you sleep. And it'll cost you emotions. And most importantly, it's going to cost you your ego because our ego is what has allowed racism to be perpetuated that there are a large majority. I think there's a small minority of people that are actually racist will call me the N-word to my face and not care. And then you've got a big group of individuals who say with their mouth that that small group is no longer around, that we're not in that kind of America anymore. And they, by their words and by their actions, perpetuate what that small group put in place. Like, because let's be real, our systems were created by that small group when that small group was everybody. And so now then you've got another group that, you know, this younger group of individuals that's, yo, I've grown up with black friends, I black culture, my favorite rapper is black. I don't, I don't agree with what's happening. And, but for the, for the last couple of years, it's been, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to show up. How do I speak up? How do I use my voice? 
for that group and the other group, it's ego. The ego part has to go down because it's, at the end of the day, we're trying to protect ourselves. I don't want, for this group, it's, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I see what's wrong, but I don't want to say the wrong thing. For the other group that believes that America is what, you know, they, they think it is and that people are just making nothing, you know, much to do about nothing, they have to at least get to a point where it's, you know, put your ego down. This country is not what you think it is. And yes, you benefited from what that small group of individuals created. But that's hard for people to do. I'm on record for saying that this, this war is not a war that we fight with armor. At the end, I, this is a war that we, you fight without armor because it, it's armor is what's been holding us back. Because we all put on the armor to protect ourselves. And we think that the armor is going to protect us as we fight against racism. But the armor only divides us from the people that we, we say we're fighting for. Because as long as my ego, at the end of the day, I'm going to protect my ego. It, even if I tell myself that me and this person are fighting a common enemy, nah, I'm still not going to put my stuff down because, you know, while I say that's my enemy, you got some things that we talked about that might hurt me and we end up not moving forward. Those are powerful and, and true words. And I appreciate you sharing that with us, Mecca, really. Now, can you tell us how the trauma related to people not seeing you as a person first? but rather they define you by being an individual with physical challenges. How has that affected your mental health? Oh, good question. I literally was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday about um, just growing up in the church and being stigmatized because, again, people react to what they see. And so I think that what's, what was really frustrating for me in the aftermath of my accident was that people would just see the chair. And then when people would just see the chair, they speak to the chair. And so even when it's, if I'm trying to talk about my hopes and my dreams and my other issues, because again, I'm more than, I've got issues that are more than physically related. It was hard because people would project their own insecurities onto me. And at the time, I didn't, I don't know how to navigate that. I, I, I didn't have the language that I have now to say that's what's happening. I didn't know that's what's happening, but people project their own insecurities onto me. And then by osmosis, absorbing them and feeling, man, what well, maybe I should, like, I should feel bad that I'm in a chair. So. It was, it was bad. People want to put labels on us and define us by those labels. So my question is, how do you want the world to see you? So my company, what I speak under, is called Live Beyond Labels. And so it is all about living beyond the labels of your circumstances. I think that that is our, this, our human nature to stereotype and to I understand that because it's easier. It's easy for me to blanket statement a group of people and then treat everybody by that blanket. But it's harder if I do the work of getting to know individuals or getting to know groups before I act out of that. But 
we all we uh, we're we're humans and we want the easiest thing. We don't we don't go toward pain. This issue goes toward people realize understanding that your default position is not going to go toward doing the hard thing. Your default position is not going to lean toward having the difficult conversation, to listening to the difficult truth over the easier lie. Our default position isn't to do that. And so we have to first recognize that, yo, you know what, I'm human. If this feels good, let me check myself because if it feels good, then it probably doesn't mean that I'm doing actual work. So I want people now to look beyond my labels. Don't, because your, your mind wants to label me as a person with this disability, but I'm a Mecca. I'm a guy out here trying to change the world by changing one person at a time. I'm a guy out here that enjoys smiling. I enjoy laughing. I enjoy living. I enjoy loving. I don't, I don't know why I enjoy a lot of L words, but I enjoy all of them. And I'm a, I'm a guy that is here all, all about humanity. I want to do my part in using my gifts to heal humanity. And so when people see me, I want them to see uh, uh, the spirit of a person that is for them. I want them to see the spirit of a person that is for us. Yeah, like I, I want them to feel me. Well, you've changed me ever since uh, we met and we became friends and I appreciate our friendship so much, Emeka. You're awesome. And it was a pleasure to be able to interview you. All right, Emeka. So our last question is actually from our friend, Wendy Freilich, who is also your friend now. So her question is, what can Tulsa do to positively impact the lives of people with physical challenges? So one, we've got to get more representation out there. I mean, because that, that's one of the reasons why I enjoy going to something. I want you to see that um, life is being lived. So representation, but also access. Briefly, I'll say that when I was at school at OU, I studied hope. And hope is comprised of goals, pathways to attain those goals, and the agency, the, 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 uh, the belief in yourself to get through. For the number of people that I have met, they're individuals and they're human beings. And so, they, of course, they have goals. We all have goals that we want to accomplish in our life. I think that when we have had our own injuries or disabilities, those have become natural barriers to us, but not because they are actual barriers, but because society has not done the job that it needs to do to remove said barriers. Like, I might not be able to walk to the store, but... If there was a sidewalk, I could roll to the store. Um, I may not be able to turn the doorknob, but if it's a door handle, I could I could turn it. So I just think that what our community needs to do is to start to identify what barriers it has in place and simply remove them. Like it, it ain't even it, it, it's not even that deep. All it is is to, to remove barriers because I'll tell you what, it makes it better for all. Uh, a more accessible Tulsa is a better Tulsa. All right. So, Emeka, as we wrap up here, you know, our tradition is to ask our guests to share a bit of wisdom and then close us out by saying our rallying cry, which is be a part and go do good things. So, Emeka, take it away. I think that each and every one of you, each and every one of us, we all have that good that's in us. 
And I think that it's very easy for us to recognize the good in us. Um, I challenge you to try to do your best to recognize the good in others because they have it as well. And appeal to that part and not just yours. So I'm, I would say love without boundaries, step out of your own bubble uh, to step in someone else's. And the rallying cry is, hey, be a part and go do good things. <laughs>